All right, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the conversion of the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, uh, as he is called in this story today. Uh, We're going to just be going through the first 16 verses. Uh, This is a profound passage. Uh, It's a profound passage because it reminds us of the essential component of the gospel, and that is that the gospel is wrapped up not in human effort, but in God's one-way love, which is discovered in the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel, God's entrance uh, into our broken universe, his, his sovereignty, uh, which is God's freedom to love sinners in their sin, is played out so beautifully in this passage. And I, I want us to be meditating deeply Upon this, I'm reading a book right now by a German theologian named Gerhard Ford called How to Be a Theologian of the Cross, and it's basically, uh, it's, it's basically an exposition of, of one of Martin Luther's key writings on understanding uh, the centrality of the gospel. And he breaks, the, the, uh, he breaks theology into two different theologies, a theology of the world, which he calls a, calls a theology of glory, which is man's attempt to be his own God. To, uh, to improve himself through his own effort. And he says that in contrast to what we see in the scriptures, which is the theology of the cross, which is God's actual intervention into our lives through his son Jesus and the mystery wrapped up in that. And that our lives must be uh, controlled uh, by a theology of the cross. This is why the cross is the first pillar for Door of Hope. And when I say the cross, I would mean the same thing that Luther means, which is both the life, uh, as well as the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. So we're saying the entire saving work of Christ is wrapped up when we talk about a theology of the cross. But Paul himself will go on to say, and as we will see, that Paul goes on to write the majority of what we have today is the New Testament. And again and again, he says, I have come to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And all comes back to this moment in his life when God smashed him to the ground and said, you're mine. And we have to reckon with that. We have to reckon with those questions of God's part, our part. And what choice did Paul have in any of this? And there's interesting questions, theological questions that are raised. I would say that God's sovereignty, because when we look at the, uh, there have been entire uh, theological streams that are created out of both the conversion of Paul and the conversion of the eunuch. The eunuch's thinking and pondering and reading, and it seems to be this kind of process. And Paul, God just smashes him and says, you're mine. And you're like, well, how does it work? Exactly. God is sovereign, which means he's free to do what he wants to do in accordance with his plans, his purposes, and his character. I think that's really important for us to remember. Beyond that, I think we have to accept the text uh, and say that the saving work of God always is a divine initiative. And it's his work. I would say, yeah, I had my part. God did the saving. I did the sinning. <laughs> and so let's, uh, let's look at this. 1 Timothy uh, 1, 15 through 16. This is, this is what we're going to be considering uh, as we look at the conversion of Paul. Uh, Paul himself said uh, to Timothy, a young pastor at the end of his life, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy 
for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as, as the forerunner of sin, the example of the ultimate in, in blasphemy against God, sinning against God, rejecting his gospel, arresting and persecuting his people, as that person, God showed grace to me that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example for those who are to believe in him for eternal life. And what I want us to be thinking about as we consider the cross, as Luther puts it, is God's alien work. It's totally alien. It doesn't make any sense. It's a mystery. What we need to be reminded of is that Christianity is wrapped up in God's willingness to save the most unlikely people. He came to seek and save that which is lost. He said, I didn't come to, to, to save those who are well. I'm the good physician. I came to save those who are sick. And what we need to see in this, in this particular story is that Paul is a reminder for us that we all have people in our lives that we think there is no way that Jesus is going to save that person. And what this story reminds us is that God's salvation is about his entrance into our broken worlds, that his pursuit of the lost, which means that we should never lose hope, which should also put upon our lips the proclamation that the gospel is indeed good news. It's about Christ Jesus's triumphant love. And I think that this is super important. So let's look at this story. Verses one and two. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belongings to the way, I love that, That's, that was one of the first titles given to early Christians. Before they were called Christians, it was just simply called the way. Men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So we begin here, with Saul. And remember what we were told just a little uh, in the previous chapter that Saul was ravaging the church. He was there when Stephen was stoned. It's the first time that we are introduced to him. He literally was holding uh, the, the, the coats of the, of the religious leaders as they stoned Stephen. And it says that he approved of Stephen's death. And then it says, then Saul uh, being caught up in this desire to snuff out this new movement called the way. Uh, that he began to ravage the church. And here, once again, this sort of violent statement is declared, still breathing threats and murder. Saul literally, these words that Luke uses are kind of pictures that we have in the Greek of, of a wild animal. His rage. He is a man right now who is defined by what he is against far more than he is a man defined by what he is for. Uh, this is the essence of what we call extremism or fundamentalism. And Paul or Saul at this point is literally breathing the air of hatred. The very thing that energizes him is his desire to snuff out this, what he considered to be dangerous movement that threatened his way of life, his belief system. And all of this was done as he even himself says in his letters, that he did it in ignorance because he did not have a proper knowledge, uh, even though he was completely trained. Remember, Saul uh, was a Pharisee. 
His father was both, uh, was both a Jew but a Roman citizen, and, and Saul received that benefit and was trained under the greatest religious leaders within the Jewish faith. And he knew the word inside and out, but he shows us the falseness of his life by the fact that his focus, his aim was driven not by love, but by hatred. And I think this is important for us to see because Saul created an atmosphere around him of threats and murder so that it was literally something that he was constantly breathing in. It is important for us to note that his heart, even though deceived and highly misguided, it was nonetheless sincere though. He believed with all that was within him the destruction of Christianity would be pleasing to God. It's as if he saw himself as a modern-day Joshua cleansing the land of the infidels. In Acts 22, verses 3 through 4, in him reciting his own conversion, he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God, as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. I think it is interesting to note that religion, rather than relationship, often leads to fanaticism. And I think that this also raises a question for us as Christians who are called to be vehicles of God's grace. The kindness of God leads people to repentance that are we known more for what we are for or what we are against? I've been a part of plenty of churches that seem to be very thorough in their ability to declare what it is that they were against. One of the things that creates the reputation of Christianity being a, uh, a religion that promotes hatred is driven by good intending Christians who desire to protect the foundations of what it is that we believe. Uh, and in their attempts, so we live in a country where there was a season within church history in which we thought the best way to actually bring the gospel forth in our land is to, is to legislate morality, to try to protect the gospel by creating laws <laughs> that would actually create a land, a Christian land, if you will. That I think that flies in the face of anything that we ever... Jesus never struck me as a very political person. That the gospel, he intended it to be for all people, not a particular political party. Uh, and he also recognized that it is by faith <laughs> that we are saved. Uh, and we cannot legislate morality. Amen. That is something that is deeply problematic. And I think that the world will always continue to do what the world does, <laughs> which is function in opposition against the gospel of truth and peace because Jesus said the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. But I think that this is something that we need to look at, though, because here there are qualities that are worth noting in Paul's life. And, if they, and these qualities remained with him after his conversion, except they became conduits of love. And I think one of the things that we see in Paul, unfortunately, Paul is what I call... Uh, a truly obsessive personality. I understand that personality. I relate to that personality. It's kind of an all-or-nothing mindset. So someone will like say, "Hey, have you ever done, you know, throw out a hobby to me, or, or you know, some sort of 
Like, have you checked out this? I'm like, I, don't, I, I can't do it. It's like, a, it's like a black hole for me. If I go down that door, like, you should, you know, I don't, I don't watch sports, not because I hate sports, but because if I did, then I would want to be an expert on it. Uh, Paul is that kind of personality. He is most definitely a persistent person. He is marked by intensity. Uh, and whatever it is that, that controls Paul, that comes out fully uh, in his personality. Uh, God uniquely uh, selected Paul and Paul's uh, intensity, his obsessive personality before he was a believer in Jesus was this intensity was given toward the destruction of Christianity. But after he became a believer, that intensity was used as a conduit to bring the love of Christ to the whole world. I mean, the man walked thousands of miles. Nothing could stop him. He was persistent. He was intense. He was, he was aggressive in taking initiative. He was extreme in the lengths he was willing to go. Damascus literally is 150 miles away from Jerusalem. He was willing to go to the... To the to the furthest distance to eradicate what he viewed as a dangerous message. And I think that there are many things in this that we, we could utilize uh, maybe a, an injection of energy, if you will, that we've been given the Holy Spirit as a means of proclaiming the good news of, of Jesus. And I think that sometimes uh, we're so afraid of becoming fanatics or becoming extreme uh, that we accept this sort of lackluster existence as followers of Jesus. But I think that we should take note from Paul that these qualities did not go anywhere after he got saved. They just were pushed toward the right things. That I remember a doctor once said to me, Josh, you're a very, very intense, obsessive person. And when that obsession is given to life-giving things, I'm sure it is hard to stop you. But I also would say, warn you that when that, those, that obsessive temperament is given to damaging things, it's probably hard to stop you from self-destructing. You need to be aware of that. I'm highly aware of that. And hopefully the gospel uh, continues to compel me to put those intensities and energies toward the right things. And I would encourage you toward the same. Amen. So look at this. I think this is important too. Notice that Paul wanted to make arrests regardless of gender. He was arresting both men and women from the way. Why? What's, what was the reason for that? I would argue that, that men and women, women, uh, which at this time uh, in world history were considered second-rate citizens, but Jesus had elevated women to a significant role. And in the early church, men and women functioned together, functioning in the gifts of the Spirit together, making known the person of Jesus. And so Paul saw both men and women that were Christians as equal threats. I think that's important and significant for us to know. Look what it goes on to say. And here is where the experience happens. Now, as he was, went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless hearing the voice, but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground. And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they 
led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I'm going to invite Evan up at this time and we're going to sing to you Blinded by the Light. <laughs> a song that has some of the most confusing lyrics ever, ever written <laughs> or misinterpreted. Uh, look at everyone laughs because they know exactly what line I'm talking about. It was the line as a kid. I'd be like, <laughs> what did he say? <laughs> All right. So look at this. I think that this is something that we need to take into consideration, that this conversion, first of all, was sudden and unexpected. Paul never links his conversion to any preparatory work in his life by God. He never does, in all his testimonies about it. So it's, it's one of these unique ways, as I said about God's sovereignty. With the eunuch, it seems there was preparatory work. Uh, with Saul, there's none ever mentioned. And so I think that sovereignty means that God has the freedom to to work as he sees fit in accordance with his plans, his character, and his personhood. And I think that the, the danger is when you say, this is how he does it every time. Because you could say the same thing about the eunuch, and that's how he does it every time. And you end up with different camps, theological camps. Let's just accept that this is how he did it this time. <laughs> and here we see this powerful reality. A light from heaven shone around him. Uh, it's sudden. And this light comes, light in the Bible is often associated uh, with manifestations of the presence of the Lord or the manifestation of his glory. Rabbis call it literally the Shekinah glory. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus' face shining like the sun. And I think that this is a, a beautiful picture where Paul often refers to it as that Jesus himself appeared to me. And he appears God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And this light literally knocks Paul to the ground, or Paul literally falls prostrate on the, on the ground, just laying face down, uh, saying, Lord, Lord. I love this, what he says. Jesus repeated the name twice. Paul, Paul. Same, you can compare this with God addressing men in the Old Testament. Abraham, Abraham in Genesis 22 11, or Jacob, Jacob, Genesis 46, 2, or even Moses, Moses. This double call, I want you to know that I am speaking directly to you. I don't want you to be confused. I'm not talking to anyone else. And notice the personal call to Saul leads Saul to ask a very significant question. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord, he is recognizing the divine reality by declaring him as Lord. But he's also recognizing the fact that he does not know him. This is God whom I do not know. That's essentially, in one moment, Saul finds himself on the ground. And, and he goes from, I have clear understanding of what it is that I am called to do, which is bring down this thing that is a threat to my belief in God. And now he is confronted with that very God and he recognizes that he does not know him. This is so profound. He does not know Jesus. 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, 
and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. I think it's important for us to understand that our understanding of who he is will define who we are. This is a supreme question that must fully be asked in order for life to really begin. The depth of our Christianity, our Christian life, is dependent upon our understanding of who God is personally, relationally. Jesus said this, my sheep hear my voice. They know me and they follow me. And I think that it's important for us to understand that Jesus himself said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the living God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Paul at this point was a religious zealot. Now he's entering into relational conversion. He worshiped a God that he didn't know. And now he is confronted by that God and only discovering that the God that he thought he was honoring was actually the God that he was attacking. This is a powerful reality because he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And the thinking of the New Testament, I think this is super important, guys, to understand there is no exclusive distinction between Jesus Christ and his community. There is no rigid either-or between his being in action and the being and action of the community. When people say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, they are basically making a declaration that is at complete odds with the entire proclamation of the Scriptures. The church is the bride of Christ. Nothing brings out wrath in a man faster than saying something negative about his wife. And I think that we need to understand that that we are so comfortable smashing the church when we don't realize that when we do that, we are essentially attacking Jesus himself. So you can say, I love Jesus, but I struggle with with his friends. If I could borrow the words of of Gandhi, kind of rewritten. Gandhi said, I love your Jesus. My problem is with his followers. But we have to understand that the church is the means by which God is chosen to actually bring his gospel, his truth, his reality uh, to the lost world. And yes, it is made up of sinful men and women, boys and girls, who cast themselves in total dependence upon the living Christ, who is the head of that church. And so I think often we have this kind of idea that we can be Christians, but we don't need the church. But there is nothing in the New Testament that supports that. If anything, it actually, that actually flies in the face of New Testament theology that argues that you are not born again into a vacuum, but you are born again into a family. And that family of God needs to have a local expression. I think it's sad that we live in a time where uh, attendance, church attendance itself, even just making it on Sunday, is becoming, it's becoming more normative to, to be completely spotty in our commitment to the church, and yet we can't figure out why we're struggling in our Christian faith. And I would argue that there's, it, it's because the reality of Jesus is often felt the most intensely in the context of relationship with others who know Jesus. That was, an, that was a, a bonus point I just wanted to give you guys. Uh, I think it's important, though. Jesus basically states, all these things that you're doing to these people, you're actually doing it to me. 
I think it should deeply impact the way that we think about how we interact with the world around us. Jesus himself said in Matthew 25, 45, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Psalm 51, 4, David recognizes that every time he sinned, every time he did something that hurt another, he said, against you, you only have I sinned. Saul should have known this. And look what he does. He didn't plug his ears and say, you're not real, you're not real. Here is that conversion moment. The lips are declaring the transformation in the heart. Lord, look at this submission. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? So profound. Do you ask Jesus that question? I've been asking him that every day lately. As I, especially I've been studying this. I'm like, Lord, I don't ask you that enough. What do you want me to do? Every time I prepare a sermon, Lord, what do you want me to say to your, what, what is it that you want to say to your people? Remember, a theologian of the cross versus a theologian of glory. A theologian of the cross is completely dependent upon Christ's life in me. Not how do I fulfill my dreams, my ambitions. The cross is all about killing our attempts to be our own gods. Lord, what do you want me to do? A total and effective no is said to this man. No future is left to him. An end is made of him. Saul just came to the end of himself. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. I like what John Piper says about this moment in Saul's conversion. He says, he was not responding to anything Paul had done to win God's grace. It was utterly sovereign. That means it was utterly free and unmerited and that it came with overwhelming authority and power. Whatever resistance Paul might have been able to put up against this sovereign grace gave way before the triumphant love of God. I think that's a powerful statement about what's happening here. Submission, surrender. He's led away by his friends, blind, enters into three days literally of darkness and hunger, left to meditate upon this great reality. He literally is experiencing... I think there's a, a powerful picture of, of Saul dying with Jesus here, entering into the grave. Jesus... Three days, three days before the resurrection. And now look at this next, this next section. I, think, I do think there's, you know, reading between the lines, I do think that there's incredible symbolism here of Saul being left to reflect on what's just happened. I, he just went from someone reduced to literally nothing. And I think that I always say that the gospel is about the good death. It's not the eradication of personality. Paul is still very much Paul after his conversion, but it is the redirection and the reformation of that personality under the power of the Holy Spirit. He literally becomes something totally new. It's literally about the death to the lie of who God never intended us to be so that we can come alive and be the men, the man, the woman that God created us to be. 
so powerful. Look, look what happens. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, not the one who died, another Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call in your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Notice when the Lord appears to Ananias in the vision. I think this is so profound, the way that Luke records it. Notice what he, it's like Samuel. Here I am, Lord. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. There is a familiarity. He hears the voice. I think this is so important. This is that John 10, 27 verse. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Ananias, compared to Paul, who are you, Lord? Ananias, a disciple, he never, this is the only time in the scriptures that he appears. We know nothing about him. He never shows up again, but he becomes a significant conduit. Yes, God shows up and speaks directly to Saul. Jesus speaks to him, and Saul actually records it often in his letters to the churches of how God chose him and taught him directly, which is what made him an apostle. But God did work through the hands and feet of Ananias to complete this work that has begun, to remind us that the church is a means by which the gospel goes forth. And I think that this is so powerful because Ananias, what I do notice about him is his faithfulness. If you see Saul, the persecutor, and Jesus, the persecuted, here we see Ananias, the faithful. And that faithfulness is driven by a personal relational knowledge. When God shows up in a vision and speaks to him, he's not surprised by it. I just asked that question to myself. If Jesus spoke to me in a vision... Like, I mean, I just, all of a sudden, light shone down. What, would it be familiar to me? Would I be like, oh, it's Jesus, of course. Or would I be like, what the heck? <laughs> Who are you? What do you want? <laughs> um, I think that this is a powerful picture of, of relational intimacy. Uh, Ananias is chosen to be a conduit of the grace of Christ to Paul, to be the church's acceptance of him into the family. And I think that there's this, incredible, uh, there's this incredible familiarity here that I think that we should all long for. The question is, is would you know Jesus's vo- do you know Jesus' voice when it comes? Do you know how to discern his voice from the many voices that are vying for our heart's affections? And the Lord said to him, rise up and go. And I love this. Look what he says. He says, I want you to go do this. You're going to go to this man, Saul, and, and Saul, is, he is like a wild animal. And his reputation has spread all the way to Damascus. Listen, this guy is, Lord, Ananias 
feels so comfortable with Jesus that he's willing to actually question the decision. Lord, are you... Sh- I, I don't... Maybe in heaven you haven't heard about this guy. <laughs> he's a bad man. <laughs> and, and there's a nervousness, a reluctance, if you will. And I think that this is a really powerful lesson as well, that God is not looking for... Uh, He's not, he's not concerned uh, with, with our fears. What he, what he's, or he's not, I should say, he's not concerned with whether or not we're ready to do a task. What he's interested in is whether or not we're willing to do a task. Uh, and I think that, that Jesus even used that parable. Which, which man is better? One who is commanded to go do something and he says, I'll go, and then doesn't go. Or the one who is commanded to do something and says, I don't want to do that, but then ends up going. And I think that this is one of those pictures where there is a reluctance, but a willingness. And that is much better than yes, but then there's no action. And look at what Jesus says about him. He says, he doesn't argue with Ananias. He doesn't say, don't be dumb. I wouldn't have asked you. If, I didn't, if, if it wasn't going to turn out okay. Uh, he says, go. But see, Ananias also probably knows that, yeah, Stephen did what you asked, and they stoned him. <laughs> so there's no guarantee that this is a safe path for him. Uh, so I, we can understand his nervousness. But I like what, what, what Jesus says to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Boy, this, this is something that we need to understand. He is a chosen instrument of, my, of, of mine. I think that one of the great issues around the doctrine of election is that we often as a church turn election into this concept of who is in and who is out. But every time the doctrine of election comes up in the scripture, it's not about who is in and who is out, but it is about God's choosing for a particular task that he might bring more in. Does that make sense? When he says to the disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. What does he follow that up with after the resurrection? He says, now go. I chose you. Now go into all the earth, making disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have taught you. I chose you that through you I can reach all. If I be lifted up, Jesus said, I will draw all men to myself. The power of God's sovereignty is that his sovereignty is his freedom. That is his choice to love sinners in their sin. And he chose you not at the expense of someone else. He chose you so that you could reach that someone else. I think that's super important. And here he says, he is a chosen instrument of mine. For what? For the purpose of bringing the gospel to the lost. He becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul. He is given to us. God utilized Paul to give to us much of what we call the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And notice what he says. This should blow out of, out, out of the water those that are constantly proclaiming in, in, in evangelicalism today this, this concept of a prosperity gospel 
that following Jesus is about your best life now, if I could borrow the title of a really bad book. It is not about your best life now. God has a perfect plan, but for you and I personally, it might be quite difficult. And we need to understand that Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. We need to be theologians of the cross. We need a theology of the cross. We need to view everything through suffering and the cross. It's where grace meets us. Paul is brought to the end of himself. He died with Jesus and became marked by a theology of the cross. I have come to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. And this is what leads to Saul the liberated. So Ananias departed and entered the house. I love this. This is so beautiful. Such a picture of what the church ought to be. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And laying hands on him, lays hands on him. As As the enemy of the church, he lays hands on him. And here, Saul receives a word from the church that you are a member of the family of God, brother Saul. Shows us that the conversion has already happened. You are, God has chosen you. He has saved you. He has redeemed you. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Salvation is not, laying hands on someone is not necessary for salvation. This is God sending Ananias specifically for healing of Saul's vision. And I I, I believe that Saul already had received the Spirit because here we have the usage of the word filled with the Holy Spirit, which is something that we are commanded to be each and every day. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and he was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Brother Saul, born again into the family, And being baptized in water, Paul declared his death to his old life and his rising to new life. Then he ended his fast, took food, and regained his strength. And what we'll see is he immediately began to proclaim the good news. So I leave with you this verse, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith and the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. May we be motivated by that gospel. May we never lose hope for those who we think are enemies of the gospel, who will never come to faith. I have become obsessed with going to preach, uh, I just saw Dave, uh, with preaching at Skate Church uh, to the high school group, which are really, really unruly. And they make me super nervous, which is part of the, it's my own um, vanity piece. I'm working through my, my fears of feeling like I'm aging and no longer relevant for kids, so I subject them to me. Uh, <laughs> but really, that's a joke, because the reason I go is because these kids, it's hard soil, and they don't know Jesus, but I know that Jesus died for them. I know that the gospel is about God's work in the human heart, and it doesn't make sense. None of us deserve the favor that Jesus shows to us. But this is what he chooses to do. This is God's one-way love, his divine initiative into our broken world. We do not add 
to the gospel. Let's be careful to never front load it. Heck, let's be careful to not even back load it. Let's accept it, receive it, surrender to it, that we might be transformed by it. Amen?